Welcome to the Boys in Blue podcast, the podcast that's all about cops. I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. You have tuned in, undoubtedly, to the most informational law enforcement podcast out there today because we'll talk to real cops, some active, some retired, and we'll get the inside story on law enforcement. So today I'm seated behind the stainless steel Titanic Boys in Blue podcast microphone in Mesa, Arizona. And we have a special guest today. He's calling in from Cade Creek, Arizona. Now, I've never interviewed anyone on the podcast from a saloon. But the guest today is at the Buffalo Chips Saloon. He is retired deputy chief of the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. Welcome, Larry Went. Thank you. Yeah, and, and just so you know, uh, it's early. I'm not drinking. Uh, <laughs> I own it, so uh, I, I have an excuse to be here. Yeah, yeah, well, I knew that, Larry, and I was just playing with you a little bit. But you, uh, sure. you've had that establishment for how long now? The Buffalo Chip Saloon. Yep, I uh, purchased it in 1998 from Max McGee. The uh, famous Green Bay Packer player that made the first two touchdowns in the first Super Bowl. It was a little country western saloon, and we've kind of grown it from there. Wow. So now you had quite you have quite a title there, Deputy Chief, Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. Now, how long did you work for the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office? 24 years, from 1974 to 1998. Now, for our listeners, Maricopa County in Arizona is that is the largest county in Arizona. Am I correct on that? It is. It's 9,226 square miles, and Phoenix, Arizona is the uh, capital, and, and but, the, but the whole county, there are 26 different uh, communities, towns, cities in Maricopa County. Wow. Now, I wonder how many states like New Jersey or New Hampshire would fit in Maricopa County. Uh, that's quite so, I've got to tell you, I've never uh, measured it that way. I have uh, driven from one end of the county to the other at a high rate of speed, and even at a high rate of speed, it's two and a half hours, so it's a wow. good-sized county. Absolutely, yeah. So you started back in 1974. Well, let me ask you about your background now. Did you grow up in Arizona? I did. I uh, grew up um, there's in Phoenix, Arizona, as I mentioned, uh, in South Phoenix. There were some projects there called the Cofelt Projects at 19th Avenue and Buckeye, and I grew up in those uh, projects and attended. Uh, Alfred Garcia grade school and Carl Hayden high school and then decided I needed to get into law enforcement, but that's another story. Sure. Yeah. Now, so you have your families here, you have uh, children and that sort of thing, Larry. I do. I've got three uh, grown children. I've got a 22 year old uh, named Riata. She, uh, works for the government in Papua New Guinea and flies helicopters and goes into volcanoes and 
does geology. I've got a son who's 28 years old. He's a deputy sheriff in Kalispell, Montana, and works Glacier National Park as the main part of his beat. And then my oldest daughter is 35, and she owns a printing company here in the Valley. Wow. Well, you know, that's a testimony to the kind of dad they had. They all sound like they're very successful in life. Well, you know, this podcast is about cops. And I think it's so important to get a little background and people to find out, yeah, we're normal people. <laughs> you know, we have families and concerns. And when our, you're like me, if our children are doing good, life is good. That means a lot. So now... You started when you were pretty young with the sheriff's department. Tell me about how you got attracted to law enforcement. Um, you know what? It was kind of a, if you can't uh, beat them, join them thing. I, as I mentioned, I grew up in uh, South Phoenix, and I lived in the projects. And I, at a very young age, you know, uh, in, in South Phoenix, uh, there were racial tensions. And uh, I was definitely in the minority, but fortunately at that time, it wasn't the type of thing where you'd shoot each other and or chop your head off or anything like that. You'd fight, and um, and so I, I had started uh, doing doing uh, that when when I was young, just kind of growing up in the projects. When I was fifteen, I took a job at a place called Angels Do-It-Yourself Center, Stacking Lumber. And it was a good job for me because I uh, wrestled and and was very active in sports and it kept me in shape. But, but it also uh, put me in touch with a deputy sheriff who stood guard at the two cash registers at the front of angels do it yourself centers and being in South Phoenix, I don't know the whole story, but they had decided that they needed uh, security. And I just remember it was about 115 degrees and I was stacking lumber and here stood this deputy sheriff uh, in front of the registers. And these two nice young, attractive ladies were running the registers and he was standing there, I think he had a Dr. Pepper in his hand, and he was, you know, all spit and polished, and he was flirting with the cashiers, and he was making just an ungodly amount of money. I think it was it was probably almost three bucks an hour. And I said, you know what? That's the job for me. I want to get into that law enforcement. Yeah, and yeah. during that time, I had um, just... Uh, Ridden with a couple Phoenix police officers a couple times, not not on my own will. It wasn't a ride along, and I just <laughs> determined that uh, this might be a good thing to get into. So I applied at the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office because I knew that they had the jails, all the jails in the county, and that you could work in a jail when you were eighteen. And so I wasn't 18, but I wanted to get a bit of a head start on it. And so this wonderful sheriff by the name of Jerry Hill, who um, I went on to work for his, the rest of his career and a lot of mine, 
uh, said, you know what, Larry, we'll, uh, we'll get you going. I was 17 years and nine months old. And he said, we'll get you going, Larry. And, and you can work in the jails. And then as soon as you're old enough in Arizona, you have to be 21 to carry a handgun. We'll put you in the regional academy and you'll go out on the road and start your career as a police officer. So that's, that's how that started. So you worked the jails for like what, three years then? Two years? Two and a half years. Yeah. Until I was about 20 years and nine months, I worked in all the jails and believe me, that's a, that's a great learning experience. I recommend it for everybody. Well, you know what? I'll tell you. You know what, I'll tell you, when I was, uh, I'm retired from the Pierce County Sheriff's Office up in Washington State, and right. I, I remember during my year of probation, they, they said, okay, we're going to put you in the county jail for 30 days, you're going to work the jail, right. it's not punishment, yeah. it's not punishment, <laughs> because that used to be nope. a whipping post, yeah. somebody, somebody screwed up oh, on the I street. Oh, I got you, at yeah. the end of a career, it can be yes. Yeah, so uh, they put me up there for 30 days. Oh, my gosh. And jails were different then, as you could probably well attest to. We had three guys for 300 inmates. (laughs) God only knows what went on, you know. But um, So that, I will tell you, during my whole career, those 30 days, the people I saw, I saw them again and again and again through my whole career. The same people that I dealt with, Yep. During those 30 days in the jail. And one thing I knew for sure, I did not want to be a jailer to begin with. And number two, I will never do anything to go to jail as an inmate. <laughs> right. That cured me right. of any kind of thoughts of crime for sure. So two and a half years yeah. in jail. Man, what were the jails yes, like back then, Larry? So I, I worked in all the jails and we had about, 6,000 inmates at the time. And so the the good thing about working in the jails and you alluded to it, you know, when you're out on the street, um, you're generally going call to call. You don't get the chance to get into the head of the person that you're dealing with generally. And you don't run into everybody you run into isn't a bad guy. I know this sounds terrible, but I truly believe it with recidivism here in Maricopa County being 77%. Um, everybody you run into in jail is doing crime. They're doing it over and over. And they're as bored as you are while they're sitting in that cell. And they don't mind talking to you about it. So not only do you learn them who they are, and yes, you're going to deal with them the rest of your career, but you also get to hear their story and that story is so valuable. You know, I went on to uh, get into uh, detectives and investigations and hostage negotiation and SWAT team. And I, I, you know, as I was going up in rank and I've got to tell you, I learned more in those three years, uh, two and a half years that I worked in the jails than I could have in any academy. And I was in an academy for 20 weeks, but but you learn it when you're oh, in the man. 
I agree 100%. Boy, I tell you, that was one of the most valuable experiences for me. And I was only there 30 days, so I can imagine. So now, yeah. you started as a deputy. And right. 24 years later, or 23, or whatever it was, when you were actually on the road, here you are, deputy chief. So tell me about that progression. What kind of assignments did you have on the way up? You know what? I was very fortunate. I started very young, as I said, and um, I I didn't have a large uh, family or other social circle, and I really got into my career. I ended up finishing number one in my police academy, and at that time, if you finished number one in the academy, you got your choice of assignments, and so normally... Uh, and assignments being patrol assignments. Uh, normally, uh, as you alluded to, you know, when you come out of the academy, you're brand new. You do some time in the jail, some time in the courts. And so I was fortunate in that I went right to patrol. I just, I had a stellar career. I loved it. I started as a deputy sheriff and got to patrol all the various areas in the county, good and bad. I went into investigations and became a corporal and then was the head of an investigations unit as a sergeant and then went to the SWAT team as a sergeant and then promoted to lieutenant and was the deputy commander of the SWAT team, then promoted to captain and uh, took over aviation, SWAT team, lakes, various areas. It was called special operations. And then major, and um, I th through that time, uh, I worked for six different sheriffs, but I just uh, continued to promote. And then when Dick Godby here uh, was sheriff, um, he had uh, started kind of grooming me, I guess, for a, for a chief position and command. And then under Tom Agnos, I uh, was promoted to deputy chief and stayed deputy chief under Joe Arpaio until I retired. Now, so how long were you deputy chief? Uh, 11 years. Wow. And how long did you work for the famous Joe Arpaio? Um, he he was still there when I left. I retired in '99, so I worked for Joe nine years. Yeah. Nine years. Wow. Yeah. Now Joe yeah. did not come from the ranks, did he? Was he appointed sheriff or no? Left? No, he was not a sheriff at all. He was a retired DEA uh, agent in charge and uh, a businessman uh, in the in the Valley, but, uh, had retired from DEA. And so he ran for sheriff and handily won and then was elected three more times, uh, by huge, huge margins. Yeah. Now he's famous for the tents, brownie sandwiches, pink underwear for inmates. <laughs> How did that, how, what was your thoughts on the tents and that sort of thing? Seeing how you had your background in jails. Um, 
So, you know, I guess this is, uh, this, this is a great segue. So one of the reasons that I think I was able to be a good chief and, and work for Joe Arpaio was because he had no knowledge of incarceration or the jails. I had started in that. And, uh, you know, I always had a bit of a soft spot for those operations. So I can tell you that everything you just mentioned, pink underwear, uh, it was great for Arpaio politically. It started uh, this simply. Uh, by that time, we had about 9,000 inmates a day in the facilities. About 4,000 of those were getting released each day because of the turnaround court system and recidivism. You can imagine when they were getting booked in, they weren't, um, you know, in a tuxedo or their best clothing. Uh, and so all of their clothing uh, went into a plastic bag and stayed uh, in a in a huge locker area for anywhere from a day to a year, and so that clothing was um, didn't smell the best and and uh, looked the best, and so we were losing about five thousand pairs a day of underwear uh, because no one wanted to put on their old, their old underwear after they'd been sitting. Um, you know, we understood that the, that that's what they wanted, but it was a huge cost to the county, you know, buying that many pair of underwear a day. So I worked with our pile on a, a plan to dye all the underwear a different color so that when we were checking them out, we could just pull their waistband back if we saw you know, this bright color, we know it was our underwear. We'd send it back in and say, uh-uh, you're not stealing these. <laughs> and so, and then we went with pink because we thought they wouldn't want to steal. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's one of those things that, as you know, a sheriff is elected and uh, the vote's important and the people's opinion of how they're doing their job is very important. And the citizenry here in Maricopa County just loved the fact that our inmates were in pink underwear. And so you that's know, how that started. Sure. And even though, you know, the, the best line that uh, the sheriff's department had was when people would complain about, well, you got these guys in big tents down there and it's hot. And uh, yeah. the best line was, well, how about our guys in Iraq and Afghanistan? They're 128 degrees inside their tent nobody knows about that so these inmates you know i mean and i'm correct me now uh, nobody was in those tents and that that hadn't already been convicted is that correct uh no it's the other way around so um there were tents that held convicted prisoners uh, and there was a section but for definitely the um <laughs> the uh non uh, so that they were, wouldn't be a threat to the community because we knew even though we had guard towers and 12 foot fences and razor wire that there would be escapes uh, from tents. So we tried to put only um, convicted people of minor, minor nonviolent offenses in them. But as it grew, um, we, we went out all over the country and, 
got used uh, military surplus tents and created a you know a 30 acre compound uh, just to house them and we did end up with some unsentenced uh, people in them but again they went through a screening process to make sure they weren't a threat to society yeah. I see. Well, now, on your way up, you had numerous assignments there. What was your favorite assignment, Larry? What did you really like about it? No, I don't think you'll find many people that would say being on a, a SWAT team, special weapons and tactics, isn't uh, a great job. Literally, I was uh, paid to, you know, shoot all day, uh, hand-to-hand combat all day, rappelling, uh, forced entries, uh, sniping, uh, you know, all the things that (laughs) a guy would just say, wow, that's fun. Uh, You know, you, you were getting paid to do it and you were held in higher esteem and it was just a great assignment. So I've got to say of all the assignments and I've worked everything, uh, from, uh, you know, Lake Patrol, investigations, community services, jails, SWAT, uh, special ops, every, you know, I just, I love that special ops assignment. The guys you work with are kind of, you know, uh, picked because of their ability, attitude, and maturity, and it's just a nice assignment. Sure, sure, the attitude, yeah. All type A guys in there, (laughs) for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Now, do yes. you have um, do you have a a specific call or incident that stands out in your mind that you'd like to share? Um, you know what? I'll give you two incidences, and both of these were while I was on the SWAT team, and it's just uh, I guess they're interesting as much as anything. Uh, and they've got a little bit of humor to them, as much as anything with that tense of. Well, you know, you know, you gotta have you gotta have a sense of humor to do this job. <laughs> yeah, I'll just say sometimes a sense of humor can get you in trouble. So that that that's a good segue into this uh, short story. Uh, in the early '80s, our SWAT team was uh, training on rappelling out of a fire tower, a six-story fire tower. And, uh, you know, it's, it was common then, and, and I'm sure it is now, that because of the job and because of the stress or because of the situations you're put in, a department psychologist would uh, accompany us on a lot of our training just to see how we reacted, what our mindset was, things, things like that. So we had a, a department psychologist, and he was up on top of the fire tower with us. And he was watching all of us rappel. And um, he said, you know what? This looks fun. I got to try it. And, and I was the uh, sergeant at the time, and I said, you know what, Doc? I just, um, not that it's not safe, uh, you know, but I, I just don't recommend it that the first thing you go off of is a tower with nothing to hold on to. No, no, Larry, uh, I want to do this. Well, of course, you know, you try and keep your, your civilians and doctors, uh, happy. So we ended up putting them on belay and, uh, lowered them off the side of the tower. And it wasn't, 
30 seconds and he was inverted upside down screaming, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm falling. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to die. We of course all thought, uh, or knew, you know what? He was on a figure eight descender. We were smart enough to put him on a something that if he lost control, it locked. And so he was just stuck there, you know, and, uh, we were going to pull him up, but I thought it might be funny to try and reinforce to him that it was dangerous. And so I, uh, I reached over to the SWAT, uh, fellow next to me and I said, here, let me borrow your knife. And I kind of leaned over and, and the doctor still screaming and yelling. He's upside down. I said, hold on, doc, we're going to cut you down. And I leaned over and acted like I was going to cut uh, the rope. <laughs> now, you know, to SWAT guys, or, uh, you know, cops will get this. That was funny, funny, funny. Uh, to the psychologist, it was not that funny. And I spent the next six weeks, once a week in his office, explaining <laughs> to him why I had no value of life or thought that uh, life was valuable. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, um, you know, th things like that, uh, they're funny at the time, but, and you I know, like it now, but, but it was, you're right, you're right, though, when you said your sense of humor can get you in trouble, and a lot of people don't understand yeah. that that's one of the ways that, uh, police officers deal with those situations, and now, I will say this, and you probably agree, that a lot of times we really have to step back sometimes and think, wow, we're getting a little bit calloused here. <laughs> Get back with yeah. some normal people and see what real life right. is all about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and I think in a normal situation, I mean, I was a hostage negotiator. I could be sensitive, but uh, this guy had just pushed, pushed, pushed to get on that rope, and it, it was just funny at the time. I understood sure. later it wasn't that funny to him. Like, you know what? I bet at uh, the end, though, he had a he had a new respect for what the SWAT team goes through and the abilities they, you know they what? need to have. We, yeah. We ended up, uh, you know, after you visit with a guy once a week for six weeks, uh, you, you become uh, kind of friendly. And so, anyway, he ended up, uh, retiring before I did. He was a civilian, a psychologist. and But we were good friends, and we remain good friends to this day just because, you know, he had a sense of humor, too, when it was all over. Yeah. Well, I hope you helped him during those six weeks, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did my best. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. now tell me. And then another yes. incident you were saying. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Larry. Oh, I was just going to say another incident, and this one's got humor in it, but not not that kind of funny. We were out on a call in Surprise, Arizona, uh, and uh, it was uh, a man who had his brother as a hostage in a home. And uh, so uh, we got there, and we are all, you know, posted out around the property, getting ready to do an entry. And the guy comes out, and uh, he's he's firing shots. So we're all taking cover. And, um, one of our, uh, SWAT members just disappeared. And you, you know, that's a very, very tense moment. Uh, you, you don't know if he was hit and is down and you can't find him. It's dark. And you know, you don't know the lay of the land. Um, and so we finally, uh, 
get the guy uh, taken into custody uh, alive, and um, we start trying to find where where our missing SWAT member is, and we hear this, "Hey, hey!" and and he had fallen into an open septic pit in this guy's yard. And so um, that was just a, uh, you know, it was kind of funny at the second, but then with all the hazmat stuff and everything that goes along with that. uh, But we were thankful that he wasn't hit, but uh, that was a heck of a place to uh, avoid gunfire in uh, six foot deep in a septic pit. Well, well, I'm glad you have some humorous memories. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now here's the deal, Larry. Uh, At what point did you decide to retire? I mean, when you had the time in and you had a pension available, obviously, but at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to do something else? So uh, I don't know um, if it's this way everywhere, but here in Arizona, it, it was the public safety retirement system and you were eligible to retire at 20 years and you received half your pay and all your benefits uh, for the rest of your life, which as you guys probably discuss on this podcast, isn't long for the typical police officer after they retire. Yeah. But, um, uh, so, uh, you know, you retired at 20. I was the chief for Joe Arpaio uh, at the time. We were doing some really good things that the people liked. And I just determined that I would stay on longer. Uh, I loved the job. As I said, it was a, a great, great career for me. It was the perfect career for me, paramilitary and, you know, uh, some control and, uh, I, I really enjoyed it, but as you probably can imagine, uh, it is very political when you're a deputy chief of an organization of, and have come up through the ranks and you're w- working for a sheriff that has to get elected. And he does that with pink underwear and green bologna sandwiches and chain gangs and tents, but to the average working law enforcement officer, those aren't at the top of the list of uh, things that need attention. And so there is no doubt myself and and Joe had uh, differences. And, uh, but, you know, it was the type of thing where I just, I enjoyed working for him and what we were doing. And uh, I stayed on. In, In 1998, I uh, had the opportunity uh, to uh, purchase a little restaurant and saloon in Cave Creek, Arizona called the Buffalo Chip. And I had always been very interested in the West and Western cooking and Dutch ovens and chuck wagons and things like that. And I just determined um, I would would retire and uh, do that. So uh, the sheriff and I were on good terms. And in fact, we were, we're probably closer on issues now that I'm retired uh, than we were on some issues then. Uh, and so we remain friends. He's a, he's a great guy. But no, I retired and was retired nine whole days. 
and decided I needed uh, to purchase a business. Nine days. Yeah. Nine, it only took you nine days. Nine to, days. To get bored, huh? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know what? I don't know if it took me nine days to get bored or nine days for my wife at that time to kick me out of the house. You know, there I was you like, go. Crazy. There you know you how it, you're, you're cops. You know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You're an honest but man, was, Larry. Uh, it was great. Yeah. You're an honest man. Well, listen, here's yeah. the deal. We talked a minute before, and I held you, I made you commit to have a part two to this. Um, we just scratched the surface on so many issues, and I think uh, sure. the idea that you are successful in retirement is so important. And that's one of the reasons I started this podcast, because when I left the sheriff's department, um, I struggled with finding significance and purpose, and I see so many other guys, and they're pulling the pin, and they don't have a plan. And so that's one of the reasons for this podcast, and that's one of the reasons I uh, really uh, wanted you to come on because you're successful. And when I went out to Buffalo Chips for the first time and I heard that you were a retired deputy, we chatted, and one of the things that I picked up on immediately when you stood up a little straighter and you had a little more starch in your back um, is when you said, I employ 20, 121 people. And you know, that's purpose in life. There's 121 individuals that are making a living, making their mortgage payments, uh, car payments, providing for their family because Larry went is an entrepreneurial spirit and opened a place and provided that employment and at the same time serves the public with a good family-oriented saloon. So I want to compliment you on that. And uh, I think that is Thank one you. of the things we all need is a purpose in life, a reason to get out of bed. Here it is, uh, 10 in the morning Arizona time, and you're already down at your establishment, which will go till, what, 2 a.m. or something? Yeah, we'll get out of here about four in the I won't. I'll be in bed before then. But my staff will finish around four a.m. and start it again the next morning at nine a.m. Yeah. Well, it's Saturday, so uh, if you're out there tonight, look for me. I'll probably be there. I'm trying to find a cowboy hat so I fit in. Uh, if you don't have one, uh, we'll we'll get you one. You'll be all set, <laughs> and uh, we look forward to seeing you. And I look forward to part two. And uh, talking about it, I make no bones about it. And, you know, again, everyone knows that typically uh, cops don't live that long after they retire. Uh, you know, I call it uh, going from 90 miles an hour to zero miles an hour. And if they don't drive everybody else crazy, they drive themselves crazy. Absolutely. So um, I'm not saying it's the perfect retirement. I, uh, and again, we'll get into this in part two. I, uh, I had 4,000 people working with me at the sheriff's office, and it was easier than 120 uh, here. But it does keep me alive and kicking every day. And when I look back and see all the young, uh, fit, uh, motivated people that I worked with on SWAT teams that are long dead, I'm, I'm glad something keeps me yeah. going. Well, you're doing something right, so we'll use you as a good example, but Larry, thank you so much, and you bet. won't be long. I'll be touching base with you. We're going to do part two, and I want to get into this a little more. Fascinating interview. So you bet. Thank you very much, Larry. You bet. My honor. We'll, thank you, sir. We'll, we'll see you at the saloon.
Thank you for listening to the Boys in Blue podcast. Again, I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. Boys in Blue comes out every other week. Subscribe to the Boys in Blue wherever you get your podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you think. 